Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturdays at 5.30 and Sundays in person and online at 10. We look forward to connecting with you. Uh, it's kind of the weekend in between spring break. I think Douglas County was last week and Jefferson County is this week, and that means two things. A lot of people are missing, and you have to listen to me preach. So, <laughs> uh, No, I am glad to get the opportunity to speak this morning. Let's pray, let's pray together. Father, we want <clears throat> to invite your spirit to be in our midst this morning. We know you're here, but we, we ask that you'd be at work because we're going to wrestle with your word and how it applies to our life. And we want your insight and wisdom. Um, we want you to work on our minds and our hearts so that when we leave, we think more correctly about you and can live better for your kingdom. And that is the goal this morning. And we pray this um, in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. <clears throat> you know, the question I get asked um, most often these days when I'm around church is, how is Barb? Um, and I appreciate the question. I was asked it, I think, four times this morning. So I thought I'd just tell you all. If, if you've been around Waterstone, you know my wife has had a lot of health issues. She got an infected hip and put on an antibiotic that caused small fiber nerve damage, a really kind of strange thing. So she has global neuropathy, That's, um, especially in her hands and feet, but everywhere. It's tingling, burning, pain. It's um, pretty debilitating. Um, then a couple years later, she got a spinal infection, bacteria in her spine that caused abscesses that caused her to end up being an incomplete quadriplegic. She was in Craig for a few months. Um, when she got out of Craig, she could move her feet just a little, uh, one of her hands just a little bit. She's made lots of progress. Um, she can actually walk with a walker. She can feed herself. She had some feeling in one of her hands, but she can use them. She actually, and I think you know this, uh, got her driver's license. Um, I don't let her drive. Because <laughs> I would have to go with her, and that's not happening. <laughs> uh, um, back in October, I think I shared that she was going in for a surgery, and they were going to fuse the rest of her back because it had degenerated and was causing horrific pain. Uh, she had the surgery, <clears throat> and that went really well, um, so that pain is gone. That's the good thing. The downside is her neuropathy has continued to get worse, and she's lost most all her feeling in her hands. She has to see them. I mean, she can feel the neuropathy, the tingling, the burning, and it can be painful, but she can't. If, unless she sees them, she has some movement, but she can't do much with them. So it, it's a struggle. Um, most days for her are pretty miserable, um, to be honest. So that, that's hard. But that's, a, that's how Barb is doing. The, the second question I get asked most these days after how is Barb is, well, how are you doing? And again, I appreciate that. But I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not sure how to answer that question. Um... You know, oftentimes in life, you just do what you have to do, and um, it's what you signed up for. Some days are good. Uh, some days are bad. Most days are just okay, and that's life. It just is what it is, and you keep moving forward. Although one, thing, one of the things I have discovered about hard times and challenging circumstances, and at least this is true for me, it might not be for you, uh, um, that's, this situation has made me a bit more theologically reflective. Uh, don't mishear that. I'm not saying it has made me more theologically correct. It has just made me <laughs> more theologically uh, reflective. 
In other words, it has caused me to wrestle with how does God interact in our lives? What is he doing? How does that all fit together? It's not a crisis of faith, but it, it, it has shifted my perspective in my faith and how I think about God interacting in life. The truth is, I think we work really hard at interpreting the scriptures, right? We, we, we read them and we try to figure out what God is saying, what God is doing, and how we should respond and live accordingly. I think it's also true that we do the same things with our lives, right? We look at our lives and we try to interpret what God is doing, what God is saying. How do we live and how do we respond and, and what is going on? I think that's just how we operate. Well, the passage we come to today is Acts 27 and half of Acts 28. We're getting near the end of the book of Acts. And this whole story is primarily about Paul's journey to Rome and a shipwreck. And it's interesting, as I've worked on this the last few weeks, uh, I, I really think that this story gives us some perspective on how God works with this world and in our lives. I think we'll get some insight there, and it gives us some insight into how we can ride the storms that come into our lives, um, storms being just difficult circumstances, and there's all kinds of things we wrestle with at times, right? Our marriage, our jobs, our kids, our health, our relationships, our family, um, the gamut, the list is long. And here, here's the thing, no one goes through life unscathed. No one goes through life untouched by hardship. At times, this the nature of life is oftentimes it's hard and it's difficult. So I think we'll get some wisdom from this passage. Um, and if you're wondering, how does a shipwreck fit with all that? Well, uh, we'll, we'll see as we go on. The last few weeks, remember uh, last week Larry talked about uh, Paul, he has been in Caesarea, he, he's been on trial, he was before King Agrippa, and what Paul has done, because he's a Roman citizen, he, he's using his rights as a citizen to appeal to Caesar, and King Agrippa says, okay, that's great, and he's shipping Paul off to Rome, literally. Um, he, they put him on a ship, and they head to Rome. So what I want to do this morning is I want to talk quickly through the voyage and the shipwreck, um, so we understand that. And then I want to jump back from that and talk about what I'm going to call the divine drama that can help us understand the circumstances that Paul goes through. And then I want to draw some lessons. Uh, um, so hang with me. Um, I'm going to say some things this morning that will make you wrestle, understand that. My goal is not for you to agree with me. My goal is to get you to think and be theologically reflective. Okay? Sometimes we don't like that. Let's look at the, uh, the travels. Uh, Paul is down here in Caesarea. They put him on a ship. They head up towards Cyprus. They're trying to go on to the coast. They want to get to Sinaitis because then they can head across to Italy over there and eventually land and get up to Rome. That's, that's the goal. Get on a ship, get to Myra. Uh, that ship they're on isn't going to Italy. They board a ship, an Alexandrian ship that is full of grain. They had these ships bring grain to Rome to feed the city. And the reason they go, they ran later. They took more risks. Uh, you were more likely maybe to get there. They, they board the ship at Myra. And, but the wind's against them. And they really struggle. They finally get to Crete. And it's late in the year. And we, we read this in Acts 27, 9 through 11. Much time had been lost and sailing had become dangerous because now it was after the Day of Atonement. So it's near the end of September, beginning of October. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to the ship and cargo and to our own lives also. Now, you don't know if Paul's just speaking, speaking out of his experience because he's traveled a lot. He's been on ships a lot. He, he understands the time of year or whether there's some kind of predictive thing that he knows that we, we're not aware of. Anyway, the centurion, uh, um, Julius, who is in charge of Paul, um, 
Instead of listening to Paul, what, what Paul said, follow the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. Uh, and they continue the journey. And I want to show you, let's bring up the map on Crete, just so you can see. They've reached Crete, and, and they're at Fairhaven. And Fairhaven has a small uh, harbor, and it's a small town. And Paul is saying, we should stay here for the winter. You're putting everything at risk if you go. And, and they decide not to because they want to get up to Phoenix, just sail along the coast. And they think, it's 40 miles, we'll do that. Bigger harbor, better place to winter, bigger town, we can do more. We're going to be there next for a number of months. So they do. The next day, it's this gentle wind, and they think, ah, we got it. They head out, and once they get out into open water, the gentle wind turns into what is called a northeaster. It's a hurricane-force wind. We listen to it. And they're blown off course. And this is a desperate situation because this wind is pushing them south. Go back to the larger map for a second. We can see what's happening. The danger is it will push them all the way south to the northern part of Africa and into these sandbars, which is kind of a graveyard for ships. So they, they put out sea anchors, as the text said. They, they start throwing things overboard because they want to raise the draft of the ship, bring it higher up in the water so they won't hit these sandbars. And, and it is a horrific storm. And they lose hope, all right? They think they're going to die. And most likely, in most situations, they, they would have. But then Paul speaks. I want to read again what, what we heard, because it's important. Verse 21, after they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Creek. We, 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 don't you love Paul? <laughs> See, I told you so. That's not what he's doing. He, he's saying, listen to me, because I, I know what I'm talking about. You should have listened to me before. Listen to me now. He's trying to win credibility. Uh, um, verse 22, but now I urge you to keep up your courage uh, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. Um, you must stand trial before Caesar. You can underline that. That's key to this story. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run run aground. So they continue the, to, to, to on the journey. And about after 14 days, they begin to realize they're getting close to land. They take soundings. And um, it's amazing when you look at the map to think that they're going to hit Malta because the chances of doing that are very small. They don't even know where they're at. But they're getting close to shore. And they're afraid that they're going to run into the rocks of the shore that they're getting close to. So they drop anchors and they begin throwing off everything. Um, the next morning they get up and some of the sailors decide they want to ditch the ship. Verse 42, the soldiers plan... I'm sorry. Oh, I don't even have that. Some of the, the sailors wanted to ditch the ship. They planned to lower a life raft and get away. And Paul goes to Julius and says, Julius, if you let these guys ditch the ship, you are going to die. <laughs> uh, um, that's not a good decision. And Julius listens this time to Paul. So he keeps them from leaving. They let the ship go. And then the next morning, they get up and uh, they see land and they see a beach and they make a run for it. So they cut off the acres. The ship hits a sandbar. It is being broken up. And now there's another threat. Verse 42, the soldiers plan to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. Right? Uh, Paul is with Luke and some of his friends and a bunch of prisoners on this ship. If the prisoners escape, the soldiers, they get the punishment the, sh the prisoners should have got. They'll get killed. So they want to kill them so they don't escape. But the centurion Julius wanted to spare Paul's life and kept him from carrying out the plan. He ordered those who, who could swim to jump overboard first and get to get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or other pieces of the ship in this way. Everyone, everyone reached land safely and you take a breath and you say, okay, Paul made it. Well, not quite yet. He's not safe yet. A strange thing happens. Chapter 28, once 
Safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islander showed us unusual kindness, built a fire and welcomed us all because it, it, it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened, fastened itself on his hand. Then the island saw the snake hanging from his hand. They said to each other, this man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, um, the goddess Justice has not allowed him to live. All right, they're, they're interpreting what's happening in their lives and trying to be theological reflective. But Paul shook the snake off into the, into the fire and suffered no ill effects. Um, now, Paul stays on Malta for about three months. Uh, they catch another ship. They make their way to Italy. They land, and they make a land journey to Rome. So at the end of uh, the journey, Paul is where he's supposed to be in Rome. So you read this, and there's a couple questions that should pop into your mind immediately. First, why so much detail and time spent on a shipwreck, right? Uh, um, Act covers 30 to 35 years, so Paul's very selective what he tells us about. I mean, I mean when Paul sails from Miletus to Jerusalem uh, in Acts 21, it's three verses. Uh, here it's 44 verses, and then another 10 verses getting uh, him to Rome. Um, Paul has been involved in three other shipwrecks, and we don't know anything about those. They're not recorded. Why do we get so much attention given to this one? That's a fair question. You see, I have a rule, and I think this is a good rule. Can you put it up? Yeah, nothing is recorded in the Bible simply because it happened. Right? It happened, but that's not why it is there. In other words, the Bible is not a history book. It's not written simply to tell us what happened. It tells us what happened and what is in there happened. That's not what I'm arguing for. I'm just saying that it's very selective what we know. And the reasons there is, it's not history, it's theological. In other words, those things in the Bible are there to teach us something about God and how he interacts with the world and what he's doing and thus how we should live. It's there by intent. And my question is, okay, Paul, Luke, who's writing this, what's, what's your intent? What am I supposed to learn from this? In other words, what's the point? Well, I think to answer that question, we're going to have to take a breath, step back, and talk about what I like to call the divine drama, okay? It's the drama that's playing out in history. There's a stage and there's characters. So let's talk about the stage for a moment. The stage is the world, right? Uh, the natural, supernatural parts of the world. It is the grand stage on which the drama is played out. It's creation. And if you look at creation, on the one hand, creation is incredibly beautiful and awe-inspiring, and it reveals the greatness and the glory of God. It's just tremendous, right? But on the other hand, what do we know about creation? It's, it's broken. That means even though it's beautiful, it's tainted by the fall, and as a result, is dangerous, all right? The stage, I like to think of it as the beautiful, dangerous chaos. Chaos. It's the stage that we live life on. Um, and most often, I don't know that you've ever thought about this, but the, the world and how it operates is neutral and indifferent to us. It just operates by natural rules and laws. And those natural rules and laws in and of themselves are neither good or bad. It's just how it operates. The laws are, uh, of nature are simply the laws of nature. So you have weather patterns, right? They provide rain and sunshine and they grow crops and uh, they provide food. But sometimes, guess what? The weather patterns, just because they're doing their thing, create hurricanes and typhoons and droughts and, and fires. <laughs> Destructive. Geological forces create rivers, lakes, minerals can be great and grand, and sometimes those forces create earthquakes and avalanches and volcanoes and great devastation. Not because the creation and its laws are evil in and of itself, but sometimes they result in harm and often in benefit. Now, here's the thing. You and I, we live in the confines of the rules and laws of nature, 
We're bound by them, right? If I decide, well, I'm going to go to the top of the roof and I'm going to jump off, what's going to happen to me? I'm going to die. Why? Because there's this thing called gravity. And I may not like that. I may say to God, God, uh, I'm special. I'm a pastor. Gravity shouldn't apply to me. And you're going, you're an idiot. <laughs> right? We're not exempt from the rules of nature. And what that means, and we don't think about this as often, as believers, we're not exempt from the brokenness and the chaos of creation. Do you know just as many believers die from cancer as non-believers? Just as many believers die in car accidents as non-believers? Just as many believers die from heart attacks as non-believers? Hurricanes and typhoons and droughts are, are not very selective, right? They're not saying, I'm a hurricane, but I'm not going to get you. Somehow you'll make... No, it, it just... Right? It's indifferent and neutral. Now let's be theologically reflective for a moment. Why did Barb get a staph infection? What we'd like to think is that there's some great grand theological reason that we'll be able to discern. Well, I've thought about that, and I don't think there is. Here's my conclusion. Um, well, I've got a staph infection because we live in a world where bacteria sometimes invades the body and lodges in the spine and causes abscesses, which destroys your spinal column and causes paralysis, that's why. Because I live in a broken, fallen world and we're not exempt. Well, doesn't everything happen for a reason? Uh, my conclusion to that is I don't think so. I don't think everything happens for a reason. I think God, don't mishear me, I think God gives reason to everything that happens. But that's very different than saying, oh, God caused that because he's got some grand plan. He's going to... Really? I don't think so. We live in a broken creation. God will redeem it. But I don't think he caused it. Okay, that's the stage. I told you you had to be theologically reflective this morning, and you're not going to like everything I say. Okay. <laughs> Let's talk about the cast of characters. First, who... We've got God, right? And what do we know about God? God is, the theological word is eminent. And what that means is he's present in his creation. He's not of his creation. He's not the world. He's not in that. But he, he is in the world in the sense that he's there and he acts. He's active in the drama. He participates in the drama. He's involved in the particulars of life. He's on stage at work. He's eminent, present. And we say God is sovereign. In other words, he's transcendent above and over his creation. And when we say he's sovereign, what we, we mean is that he has supreme power and authority. We're saying that God is in charge. And what that means is nothing happens out of his rule and reign. And that he has ultimate control of the end of the story. After all, he's the author of the drama and he controls the plot. He's like a king over his realm. He is in charge. Nothing happens without his permission. But he's not, and this is where you're not going to like this, okay. Hold on. He is not always controlling every detail. In fact, let me give you a statement. Um, and this should make you uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable. God is in charge, but not always in control. By the way, I didn't come up with that. Uh, um, there's a whole group of theologians that you can trace throughout history who came up with that. It doesn't fit with the, some of the typical things we say. But what they're saying is, look, um, God is in charge. He is sovereign, but... He creates spheres of freedom where he decides to limit his control so that 
people and creation other be, are free to act. And their act has consequence and determines how things happen. God's still in charge, right? He, he has authority over it all, and he knows where it's going and is determining the ultimate outcome. But in the areas of freedom, he limits his control. Hmm. Think of it this way. It's like a boat. We're on a boat. The captain of the boat is going to decide where the boat goes, right? He's in charge of its destination and ultimate outcome. But those on the boat, they, they can do all kinds. They're free to make decisions and choices and live in all kinds of ways. The captain's still sovereign. He's, just, he's in charge, but he's not in control. Because beings on the boat make choices and have agency and make decisions and act. Now, here's the question. How big is the boat? Just a rowboat? Okay, God doesn't micromanage. He's not in charge of all the details. But on all the big stuff, he is. Is it a rowboat? Maybe it's like a ship, you know, one with mass. It's bigger than that. So the, the arena of freedom is it, 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 not just the details. Or maybe the boat is like a cruise ship. You know, one of those cruise ships where, where there's all kinds of restaurants and uh, activities and swimming. I mean, it's just huge. And everybody's free to act on the cruise ship, but God is still the captain. How big is the boat? How big is the arena of freedom? It's easy to say God isn't going to micromanage or control the details of most of life, uh, details, but what about the big picture of life? What does God control and what does he not? And, and you see, we could debate that, and I think there's a lot of mystery involved there. I'll just play my card. I think most of life takes place in the arena of freedom. Now, you have to wrestle with that a little bit. Now, you, people react to that, and they, I think they should, right? For two reasons. One, it's really scary to think that God is not controlling every detail of life. That's scary because we find a lot of comfort in thinking God's, God's in control. I do. So that makes that statement makes me nervous. It should make you nervous. We find lots of comfort in that. But, but just because we find comfort in it doesn't mean it's true. We may want it to be true, but that may not be how God interacts with this world. A second people thing people don't like about that statement, it seems to diminish God and his greatness. It makes him less than he is. And you know what? I think just the opposite may be true. To genuinely allow human freedom on a chaotic stage and yet still accomplish his divine purposes is far more amazing than simply controlling every detail of life. Let, let me illustrate um, imagine I'm God, you don't have to work at that, um, and, and God and you are playing chess. There's two scenarios. God moves, and then you move. Oh, but, but wait, do you know how to play chess? Oh, you know, it doesn't matter because you're really not moving, I'm moving for you. I'm controlling your hand because, right, I'm in control of every detail. Right? That's the implication. If, I, if God's in, in control, then he's in control. So you may think you're free to move where you want to move, but you're really not. I'm just guiding your hand so you move where I want you to move because I'm in control of all the details. Well, wait a second. I move. Who do you think is going to win this game? God. You know why? Because God is really playing God, right? Because he's in charge of everything. And there's some problems with that, right? Because what it does is it turns us into robots. And two, it makes life what we experience because we, we think we're free. Well, that just must be an illusion because God's in charge of every detail. 
Oh, and, and it means we're not really responsible. I mean, if I'm playing and you're playing, but I'm controlling every move you make and you lose the game, I can't say, boy, you're not a very good chess player. No kidding, duh. Because I didn't, right, I'm in charge. And that means I control everything. And it also means that we're not just not responsible, but that our love isn't really love because it's coerced. And life doesn't really have much meaning because it's all determined. And you know the worst thing? Because God is in charge of, in, not just in charge, but in control of every detail. Ultimately, he's responsible for evil. Man, we like that notion that God's in control, but I think it leads us to all kinds of problems. Because one thing I am sure of, God is not the author of evil. He allows it, but he does not cause it. Okay, there's another way to think about the game. Okay, I'm God again, because I like playing God. And we're playing, and I move. And guess what? You get to move. I mean, for real, you get to move. You get to decide. You have freedom and agency, and your moves matter. But I'm God, and I'm the grandmaster, and I'm so good at chess. It doesn't matter where you move. I'm going to use it for my purposes and ends, and get who's going to win? Yeah. Even though you're free to do whatever you want within the rules of the game, God's going to win. Now, what's more impressive, God winning when God is playing God or God winning when we're actually free? Oh, and then think about this. There are 8 billion chess games going on at once. And God's playing them all and they're interacting. And he is still going to accomplish his ends and purposes. Now, that's pretty impressive. And that's what sovereignty means. What I'm suggesting to you is God is far greater than we ever imagined because not only does he know what we're going to do, he knows what we might do, and he knows all the contingencies of us doing what we might do and all the permutations that come out of that, and he knows that for 8 billion peoples. That's pretty impressive. And that's what sovereignty means. God's in charge, but he's not in control. Um, okay, God is one of the actors on the stage. Humans are actors on the stage. And as I've been arguing, humans have agency. In other words, they can act and their actions make a difference. And they have free will. Why? Because they're created in the image of God. So it gets us to this question. How does my free will and agency interact with God's sovereignty? How does that work? So let me give you an illustration. Years ago, I'm 67, so a long time ago, 50 years ago, I was learning to drive, all right? And I went to Abraham Lincoln High School, and they had a class on driving, so I read the book and got the instruction, and at the end of the class, you had five hours of driver instruction. Got in the car, the instructor's there, heading out of the parking lot, I'm going to turn right uh, on to, to uh, I think it was uh, Federal, and... I look, no cars are coming, I give it gas, and we don't move. I go, what, what is going on? Give it gas again, and we don't move. And I look over, and the instructor's kind of smiling. He's got his foot on a brake that's on his side of the car. <laughs> and I go, and he points up, and there's a red light that I was going to turn right onto that I didn't see, and what a red, a red light, and he just said, no, you're not. Now, it's interesting uh, as we drove around. The instructor really didn't say much. Most of the time he was pretty quiet. If I was really an idiot, sometimes he'd put on the brake. Once in a while when I was doing something that needed to be corrected, he'd correct me a little bit. But, you know, it was up to me to decide where to go and how to get there. And ultimately, he made sure we got back to the high school. But I was thinking about that. Why didn't the instructor tell me what to do every time? and where to go, and where to turn. Why? This is not brain science. Well, it is brain science, not brain surgery. Um, 
Because he wants me to be a good driver. How do you become a good driver? Because making all those decisions and driving and doing all that helps. I mean, I had read the book. I understood the rules. He said, now you got to practice. Because he wanted me to be an adult driver, not somebody who always had to be told where to go. It seems to me that's how God interacts with us, right? That what he wants to do is, is to help us mature and develop the mind of Christ and make good decisions. And what that means is he gives us all kinds of freedom to learn because he's raising Christian adults. In fact, uh, Hebrews chapter 5, 14 is talking about the mature and says this about the mature. They are those who by constant use of the word have trained themselves to distinguish good and evil. In other words, they go through life and they've learned to make good choices because they reflect the mind of Christ. And that's, that's maturity. So, yeah, God's in charge of the end, but he gives us all this freedom in life to make decisions. And by the way, I, I think uh, you can look at Paul in the book of Acts, and that's what you see with him. How does Paul decide most of the time where to go on his mission journey? Very simply, he decides, right? He decides uh, um, to go to Jerusalem and then Rome. He decides to go back to Macedonia, and uh, he decides not to go and stop at Ephesus. Most of the time, he just decides. Sometimes God puts on the brake, right? In Acts chapter 16, he wants to go into Asia, but it says the Holy Spirit kept us from going into Asia and would not allow us to go into Bithynia. God's got his foot on the brake. Other times, God shows up and says, I want you to go this way, right? He had a vision of a man in Macedonia, and the man is saying, Paul, come help us. That's God telling him, I want you to go here. But most of the time, God is letting Paul decide, even on these missionary journeys, which are integral to the advancement of the kingdom, because he gives freedom. Okay, so you have God, you have humans, and you have Satan, who's the opposition, and he has agency, and oftentimes acts to thwart God's plans. And he's free as well. Okay, okay, Nick, you said, well, that's, real, that's interesting. I don't know if I agree. It's kind of interesting. I'm going to have to be theological reflective as I think about this. But what's that have to do with the shipwreck? I, I think everything. Okay, what's the point? I think uh, Luke is making the point. Well, you see it in Acts 23, verse 11. The following night... The Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify about me in Rome. In other words, God is saying, Hey, I'm in charge, and you're going to Rome. That's the end game for Paul to preach the kingdom in Rome. That's what will happen. How it happens, when it happens, how he gets there, the nature of the journey, that's all up for grabs. But Paul, you getting to Rome, that's not up for grabs. I'm in charge. Now, other people's decisions and your decisions and their actions and your actions are going to determine how it happens, but it is going to happen. You know, when they're in Fairhaven and Paul says, I think we should stay here, if they would have listened, they wouldn't have lost the ship. That decision is a real decision. They made a bad choice and they paid the consequences. They lost the ship, the grain, everything, and all the money. So the point of the text is, Paul, you're going to get to Rome, despite human opposition, right? The leaders make terrible decisions. The sailors want to kill him. Uh, the, the sailors want to ditch him. The soldiers want to kill him. There are difficult circumstances. The time of year, the wind, the storm, the sea, the rain, the cold, the waves. Could have easily been lost at sea. It's amazing they hit Malta. So despite human opposition, despite difficult circumstances, and despite supernatural hostility. Remember the snake? Now, I don't want to argue too hard for this, but I think that's way, God's way of saying, you know, there's more going on in the story than you think, because what's the image of the snake bring up for you? The garden and Satan. And we don't know to what degree 
God was use, uh, Satan was using supernatural forces to try to thwart the advancement of the kingdom and keep Paul from Rome. We don't know, but he seems to be active. So Luke is writing th- this this part of Acts so that later on, as Christians read it, they'll say, "You know what? God's in charge of this this church thing." And he's going to make happen what has to happen for the church to become what he wants it to be. Part of that is getting Paul to Rome. A lot of freedom in how that happens, but Paul's getting to Rome. So here's the point, what we take from the stories. Didn't put that up. God is with his people in the midst of the storm and will accomplish his purposes despite any opposition, difficult, difficulty or obstacle. That's true for Paul, and I think that's true for us as well, that God will accomplish his purpose. His purposes in our lives are probably different than, 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 than Paul's. So let me, let me give you three lessons I think we can take from this. Hopefully it will put pieces together for you. And, and, you, and, and I'm assuming you understand that we, we are not exempt from the storms. right? Because we operate on the stage of a broken creation. We experience the chaos. Even Paul doesn't get to avoid the storms. I mean, think about it. If God just wanted Paul in Rome, he could have zapped him there, right? Or he could have made the journey easy or fast. God doesn't do that. It's not how he operates in life. He, 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 he lets things happen. So what do we learn? First, in the storm, make good decisions. Because those decisions matter. In this story, the decisions people make shape the journey. The captain and the owner ship say, no, we're leaving Fairhaven. We're going to go to that other harbor. And as a result, they get caught in the storm. That's a real decision they made. The sailors, if Julius doesn't stop them, they're going to hop off. Julius will lose his life. Paul will still get to Rome. It was a real decision. Paul's if is a real if. Our decisions matter in our lives. I like what Haddon Robinson said. He says, you make your decisions and they turn around and make you. In the midst of God accomplishing his purposes, we are free to participate, obstruct, abdicate what God's doing, but God's purposes will be accomplished. So you got to make good choices. Now understand this, that making good choices is far more a a, a process of wisdom than it is of finding a particular path that God has laid out for you, what we sometimes think as the dot. Looking for a dot and making a wise choice are two different things. And I'm suggesting, because we live in the arena of freedom, there are not not many dots. What God expects of us is to make good decisions, and that means wise choices. And use scripture and wise counsel and circumstances and passions and gifts and all you put that all together. And by the way, I think the arena where we have to make good decisions is quite large. I think, I think when it comes to your career, make good decisions. When it comes to where you live, make good decisions. When it comes to the job you take, make good decisions. I'm not sure God has that all planned out for you. When it comes to who you marry, make good decisions. I don't think God has a dot. Paul says in Romans 7, as long as they're a believer, you're free to marry who you wish. Oh, crap. You mean I got to choose? That's the point. Because guess who lives with them? You do. Right. Because God isn't trying to make robots. He's trying to make mature Christ-like followers, adults who have the mind of Christ, who are wise, who make good choices. The only way you get that is by letting them make wise choices and sometimes mistakes. Now, now, anytime God can put on a break, anytime God can show up and say, no, go this way, there are those moments when God has something specific he wants to do, but you stay open to that and he'll make it obvious. You don't got to go searching with a, you know, God is not playing a game with this. You know, it's hide and seek, try to find my will for you. Really? I don't think so. I don't think so. Think about this. In James 1, right, James says, when you encounter trials, we're supposed to pray for what? Direction? 
No, James 1 says when you encounter various trials, pray for wisdom. Why? Because you're free to make good or bad choices. So pray that God would give you insight and wisdom so you make good choices. Okay. Second, in the storm, make good decisions too. Realize God is present in the storm. Okay. Well, we know that. But when we say God is present, what do we really mean by that? What we mean by that is that God is not only there, but he's active, right? He's acting and interacting and sometimes intervening. He's there and at work. That's why we pray. Let's go back to the story for a moment. When the angel comes and talks to Paul, he says, God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. Isn't that good? Kind of a strange thing to say, God has given you, Paul. What's that imply? It implies Paul has been asking that they might be saved, that everybody should survive. That's why they they survive, because of Paul's prayers. James 4 says what? You do not have because you do not ask. He's saying, look, pray because you're in the arena of freedom. I'll act. I'm here. I'm present. But man, you're a free human agent Pray, because if you don't, things aren't going to happen. Prayer really makes a difference and matters. But here's the difficult thing about being God present. Most of the time, even though he's present, he's hidden and silent. Let's be honest for a moment. How many of you have seen angels? Probably some in here. But most of us have not. What's that mean? It's not God's normal way of acting in his world. Sometimes in our lives there are places where the veil gets thin, right? And we can see to the other side and we have a sense of what God is doing. But the reality is most of the times in our lives God is hidden and he is silent. Doesn't mean he's not there and doesn't mean he's not at work. It's just that we can't see it. And truth be told, we're often better seeing his hand at work looking back. In Barb's situation, most days I will tell you that God is silent and hidden. I don't know what he's doing. Now, can I look back and tell you at moments on this journey, has he showed up? Oh, big time. And most often through his people, he's been at work. But even the testimony of scripture is that God most of the time is hidden and silent, right? Spans of 400 years, there's times around Moses and the Exodus and Elijah and the prophets and times of Jesus and the establishment of the church. I'm not saying he can't, I'm not saying he doesn't, I'm just saying most of the time That's not his norm. And I pray that you see angels. That's awesome. Third thing. So make good decisions. God is, realize God is present. Three, the storm, in the storm, have faith in God's purposes. He's in charge of the end, right? Uh, Paul says, I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Um. In the storm and in difficulty and in suffering, you want to trust God's goodness and his faithfulness and his ultimate purposes. What you don't want to do is trust that God is going to save you if by saving you, you mean preserve your life or make you comfortable or make everything okay. Because that's not what God promises. What he promises is that I might not keep you comfortable. I might not keep you safe. In fact, I might not even preserve your life. But I will accomplish my purposes through you and what your, your purpose is in the kingdom. That will be done. Now look at Paul. I mean, Paul says, yeah, his life is preserved. But that's not God's purpose to preserve his life. God's purpose is to get him to Rome. 
And that's what he's saved to. Fulfill your purpose in Rome, Paul preached the gospel. Because what happens to Paul in the next couple of years? Nero gets him and beheads him. Well, where was God then? The same place he's always been. You mean when Paul gets his head cut off, God's there? Yes. What does Romans 8, 28, we always go to this, and we should. It says, and we know that in all things God works for good, for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. In other words, goodness is the fulfillment of God's purpose. It's not that everything is going to be comfortable and fine and that I will live. It's that God is good and loving and about his purpose and ultimately will get us to his end. So, let's end where we started. How is Barb doing? Nick, how are you? Well, we're trying to make good decisions. We're, we're, we're trying to believe that God is present even though most days he seems absent. And we're trying to have faith in him and his purposes even though we, might, we know that might mean it's not necessarily going to get better. Sometimes it's hard, but that's the journey of faith. As Hebrew 11 says, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Amen. Let's pray. Father, um, this has been uh, um, a challenging message just to listen to and to try to think through because we're, we're, we're trying to figure out how an infinite, all-powerful, omniscient God interacts with his world and more importantly interacts with our lives. And, and Lord, I, there's a lot, a ton of mystery around that that we don't understand. But, but we do know that, that, that uh, we want to love you and we want to serve you we want to make good choices. We know that you're here. We know that you have a purpose that you're accomplishing in our world for your kingdom. We want to play our part in that. Help us do that, Lord. Help us be people who live by faith and not by sight and live in a way that honors you and your kingdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.